Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. Yes, I am still alive. Thank you to all of you that checked up on me. Obviously, I did not post a podcast last week, and I learned a valuable lesson. Don't talk about the fact that you lost your theme song and you were thinking about quitting everything. And, and again, I was just trying to explain that it was one of those things that kind of it was a gut punch. I was upset. And then take the next week off because people automatically assume that you've completely quit. I've had a couple people like, man, come back, please. Don't worry about the theme song. It wasn't the theme song. I, I mean, just to explain, I'll just now, now that people have asked and, and been all worried, I'll just explain what happened. Sunday is usually when I do the podcast. We had a very, very hectic weekend as it was. And Sunday, we wanted to go get our Christmas tree. Now, last year, we picked up, we got a new house and our new house in the living room, half the living room has like giant ceilings. They go up like 20 feet. And traditionally, in our other two homes, our first home has... We had a little teeny tree every single year. We lived there for like 11 years and we'd have to get like a four foot tree and I'd put it on a box because I had my dog Chunky who was a big yellow lab who his big tail would go by and whack all the ornaments off the tree. So I'd always put the tree off the forest. We always had a tiny tree there. Then we got to my other house when we just left and that one there wasn't a really good spot with the tree because there were so many windows in the living room. So we had this one little corner we could put it in. So once again the ceilings were a little lower we'd get shorter trees. Well, we moved into this one last year, and I was like, I looked at Billy, I'm like, I want a big tree. I've never had a really big tree. It's be cool, at least for once, just get a really big, stupid tree. Not 20 foot, but I want something around 10 or something. So unfortunately, it took us so long to move in that by the time we went to go get our tree, it was mid-December. There's a tree farm literally like a mile and a half away from us. Everybody's like, you got to go to this tree farm. It's amazing. You got to go to this tree farm. It's amazing. So we get back from work. We pick up the kids. We're like, we're going to go get dinner. We're going to go pick up a tree. We drive to the tree farm. And I'm like, man, there's nobody here. This is really weird, but this is great. We'll be able to get right right in and right out. It was closed. They had run out of trees like a week earlier and they were already closed. So, we're like, oh, this is great. So, we ended up going to the local shopping center and picked up a tree out of the parking lot of Home Depot. We joked it was our parking lot tree because it was literally they had them out like in front. And we're like, oh, there's our tree. It ended up being a very nice tree. And honestly, we we're just so happy to be in the house. It didn't matter. But this year, we wanted to make sure we got the jump on it so that we could get our big tree. So, we went out much earlier. We went out last Sunday. We went again to the same tree farm. We drive up this time it's a bustle of activity there are people coming I, I point over to Billy I'm like oh there's some cars come with trees so we're in good shape here we pull up we get in line they kind of you have to like go around to get into the parking lot it's one of the places you can cut down your own tree which I'm not into because I'm lazy and I just want my tree already cut and we pull up and the young lady comes up and she's like hey how are you guys here to get your tree yeah, we're here to get our tree and she's like well just to let you know we really don't have anything over six feet we kind of look at Billy. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. We came early this year. And she's like, yeah, we have a shortage on big trees. It'll be a couple years. So we went back to the Home Depot parking lot and picked up our tree from Home Depot. We did get a, a slightly taller one this year, not over the top, but that was that took some time on Sunday. And by the time we got everything, you know, the tree up, it was decorated. I just wasn't feeling like doing the podcast. I like doing them earlier when I have coffee and I'm all jacked up. So I'm like, you know what? I'll just do it on Monday. I figure one day late wouldn't be a big deal. Well, Monday at work, it was a long day. These uh, When you teach, the days leading up to the holiday break are incredibly long. And I ended up feeling like garbage that night. Like I kept, I thought it was coming on with a cold or something, not the Rona, thank God, but it, it felt like a cold or allergies. And I sat down to start the podcast and I kept having to sniff. I kept having to clear my throat. And I'm like, you know what? I don't feel like doing this. If I had done it, I was going to mail it in. So I'm like, you know what? I'll do it on Tuesday. And I'm going to be completely honest. 
Tuesday came along. I had some feedings to do. I just, it wasn't in the card. So unfortunately, I missed a week. I ruined my streak, so we'll have to start another streak. But keep in mind, you know, I do have a very active life. Not active, but I have a lot going on. I mean, between all the spiders, I think people sometimes forget that I have a family. I do teach, so it means bringing stuff home, working like after I do this podcast and post it, I will be planning some stuff for Monday. And, you know, between the kids, that, and the fact that I have like over 250 animals I care for, there's not a lot of free time. So sometimes all it takes is one little thing added to the weekend to kind of bump out my, you know, bump my plans out of the way, which in this case was the podcast. And again, I don't, I've done it before where I forced my way through a podcast. The, the ironic, the ironic part of it is it was one that I thought was terrible, almost didn't post and everybody loved it, but I didn't feel good about it. Like I got done and I'm like, I mailed that one in and I didn't like that feeling. So I want to make sure I can come at this one with energy next week. I will be back on. We'll have it. We'll start that streak again. Although we are getting our new dog next week. I had, I had I don't think I've shared this before, unfortunately, but, uh, my dog, Molly, who we've had for 12 years, uh, she was my dog, my, I'd say my personal dog. I was her favorite. She followed me all around. She's like my little blonde shadow. She absolutely adored me. She was about 14 years old. We have had her for 12 years. She's been my girl for 12 years. Unfortunately, uh, last year she was diagnosed with kidney failure. She was getting old. She had cataracts. She was almost completely blind. And it was getting to the point where she was doing well, doing well. And then it was obvious she was not doing well and she was not feeling good. So unfortunately, we had to put her down. Three weeks ago, it sucked for lack of bit. Anybody has dogs, I'm not going to get big time into this, but I will probably do a video with her because Molly was the one usually clicking around in the background of my videos. She was one that hated having her nails clipped. And so what happened is, unfortunately, her nails would get a little bit longer than we'd like, and we'd have to bring her to the vet to get them done. And so she was the one usually clicking around on those hardwood floors or the tiles in the kitchen in the background. So she's unfortunately gone. However, we I was going to take my time. Usually when we lose a dog, the first thing we do is we go on the hunt for a new dog. It's not that we forget the old dog. I've had this discussion with people before that don't get this mentality. It's, all right, that one has been a major part of the family. We love it to death. We're never going to stop talking about it, and we don't. We still talk. Again, I just started this one talking about Chunky, who's you know, been dead now. He was, she was the dog I got to replace Chunky. Um, we like to go out and get a, a new dog. And I was going to take my time on this one. This one kind of hit me. Like I, there was only going to be one Molly. I'm never going to get another one like that. And it just so happened that I got caught watching a class. I was bored out of my mind and I opened up pet finder during the day and a dog was posted that looked exactly like her about the same age she was when we first got her. Long story short, we're going to go pick her up next weekend. So very excited about that, but it's going to take a chunk out of my weekend. So I probably won't end up posting a video, but I'll make sure we get the podcast done. So now that we're seven minutes in and all I've done is talk about myself, which is something I'm usually loathe to do. I'm not a big fan of talking about me in these. It's supposed to be about the spiders. Let's get into the spiders. And this one was one, the reason why I wanted to make sure I did it justice and didn't rush it because if I'd done it on a weekday, I would have been like trying to get it done because I want to just sit down and relax after work and I didn't want to rush it at all because I thought it was one that could be a good topic and one that kind of deserves a little attention. So what we're going to be talking about today are the top mistakes keepers make and the ones that I have kind of heard over the years. I did something about beginner mistakes early on. I think it was like two or three years ago. I have to, the problem is I've done so many podcasts now and I've done some of these question and answer ones where it won't say in the title what I'm talking about and sometimes these are in there. So I know I did a question and answer one where I talked about some of the mistakes, but I don't think I've put together a comprehensive list of some of the biggest things things that I've heard while doing all the Tom's Big Spider stuff. And to be clear, these are not just beginner mistakes. These are ones anybody can do, myself included. And of course, I will always call myself out when it comes to it. And I, it, we all have moments where 
We forget the rules. We forget what experience has taught us. We forget what we've read on a bunch of websites and seen on YouTube videos, hopefully the good ones. And we do something that is against what we know in our heart is against what we should be doing. Or in some cases, we've just gotten to a point in the hobby that this has never come up. It happens and we do the wrong thing. And so again, I will chime in with my own personal experience, but these are the ones I went through and I just started making a list of all the emails, all the comments, I have answered and all these situations that I've, you know, have to go, all right, what happened here? And, and the person explains and go, oh, here's where we went wrong. I tried to take all of those into account and put together a list that could, some of these obviously are more likely to happen to beginners, but a lot of them here are, have been done. I had somebody just recently contact me with a with one of these the guy had been in the hobby for five years it's just it's, nobody's perfect everybody messes up at some point or another everybody at some point well most everybody at some point ends up with a spider that they maybe didn't do all the homework on or a spider they couldn't find a lot on it happens so this isn't I want to make it very clear as a teacher the one thing you recognize is that every time something goes wrong or you do something wrong or make a mistake it's that's the opportunity for learning if everybody I, I've explained this before when my kids come in they make mistakes and they look all embarrassed about it. I'm like no 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 if you guys didn't make mistakes I wouldn't have a job obviously if you guys knew how to do all this perfectly what would you need me for? So keep in mind, we all can learn from these, but I do think it'd be kind of cool to go through and pull out some of the most popular ones I've encountered. So first one we're going to cover is wrong setups. And what I mean by wrong setups is somebody gets a, an avicularia, avicularia from Petco. They had it in a exoterra set up like a terrestrial. And I get an email going, hey, I'm not sure what's going on with my avicularia. It's hanging out in the upper corner. It's webbed a little bit. It never comes down to the ground and it doesn't seem to be eating. And then I look at the enclosure and it's a barren terrestrial enclosure with this poor spider up top that's like has no cover. This happens all the time. Wrong setups as far as arboreal, fossorial, terrestrial species. The most common variation of this, I find, is people getting fossorial spiders and setting them up as terrestrials, and this has been happening since people have been keeping tarantulas. It was, I can tell you, back in the 90s when you go to shows, how many things I can look back on and go, all right, that spider was definitely not kept well. It happens all the time, and sometimes not. it's not just a beginner issue. I had a situation recently where somebody contacted me, and they had picked up the Ophilipinus. Now, I have done a lot on these, so I will admit I was a little like, for crying out loud, I've done a lot of a lot of videos and articles on these guys. But anyway, they had read somewhere that the Ophilipinus was an arboreal tarantula. There is information out there. A lot of the Orphanacus species, there is information out there. And I even hear from folks in the Philippines that tell me like the Orphanacus species Panay blue. A lot of folks will tell you that they are arboreal when they see them in nature. They are off the ground in bushes and in the roots of trees. Now, again, arboreal, you picture kind of higher off the ground. So I always have a hard time with this one where semi-arboreal ones are ones like the GBB that will web up in the bottom of bushes and stuff. But regardless, if you do your information, even if you do your information, you're going to find some stuff out there that says that Orphanacus species are are arboreal. I've even seen it with the Ophilipinus. I've seen no evidence of this. I did set one up once with the ability. It basically had a semi-arboreal setup. So I set up a place for it to burrow with cork bark on the ground, and then I put up a cork bark up in the air, kind of like leaned at an angle like you would do for an arboreal. It burrowed. I did the same thing for a Panay Blue. They did not go arboreal. They burrowed anyway. This person contacted me with a picture of the setup, and the setup was a basic, like something you'd put in a Vic in. There was very little substrate. There was a piece of cork 
torque bar glued on the side of the, it was an AMOC box glued on the side of the AMOC box. There were leaves coming off of it, and it was definitely 100% an arboreal setup. And the sling was kind of curled up in the corner, not doing anything, not eating. So there's a situation where the person had done, and they told me, I, I did some research, and I heard that in the Philippines, they are arboreal. And luckily, I had been privy to that information. I won't call it misinformation because somebody's somebody's seeing this stuff, but we're just not seeing it in the collections. So what I advise them to do is redo the enclosure, give them deep substrate, make sure it's moist substrate, put a little starter burrow in, pour a little water in that starter burrow, see what happens. I get an email back a week later with a photo of the side of the enclosure with the tunnel that the spider dug all the way down. It burrowed to the bottom. It was eating fine. Problem solved. That's what I'm talking about with the wrong setups. It can happen to anybody. The other one I see people do all the time is set up slings or species that like some moisture and dry enclosures or vice versa. And I know that can be confusing because we will read care sheets or care guides on certain spiders and they'll say, these guys love it dry. But they fail to mention the fact that many species of slings, the vast majority of species of slings will appreciate some moisture. They will burrow to find that moisture. And what happens is when we set up those slings in a way that it's too dry, we end up with dead spiders. I mean, one that comes right off the top of my head, one that comes to mind is the P. muticus, the king or queen baboon spider, where a lot of folks read that they come from these very inhospitable places where it's very hot, it's very dry, and they take the slings and they put them in little pots of dry dirt, and before they know it, they have dead slings. And that the problem is, we forget the fact that in the wild, they burrow, they can burrow down to find the level of moisture that they need. So if you don't give them that moisture in their enclosure, you're depriving the spider of something they need to survive, they need to thrive. Now, the flip side of that are folks that keep things overly moist. They get like a GBB, and instead of giving it a little corner, sprinkling a little water on its web every once in a while, you see the GBB curled up in the corner. It's webbed up the corner, top corner of the enclosure, and the substrate is completely moist. So we get the flip side. So wrong setups can happen. They Obviously, this is one that's going to happen more with folks that are just getting into the hobby, but there is conflicting information out there. It can be confusing when you read about a spider that should be kept dry with a water dish, but suddenly you get a sling, you put the sling in dry dirt and you can't figure out what's going on, that can be confusing to people. And I totally get that. And again, with so many new species of spiders being becoming available into the hobby, it seems like every year, there are ones out there that we can't find information on. So what happens is folks get them, they set them up, they didn't get the information they needed, the correct information, and they put them in the wrong types of setups. And then later on, they're looking at it going, wait a minute, why isn't this thing acting like the way it's supposed to? that's a situation that can happen to anybody. That's a problem that anybody can encounter. Heck, I did it. I, I will explain one that I did it with. And the Thrixapelma ocrity, when I first got mine, I set the slings up as just basic terrestrials. And somebody came on and said, just to give you a heads up, they're more semi-arboreal in nature. You know, they're probably fine as slings. And, and slings are slings. The majority of slings will do some burrowing, but with the exception of the Vicularia. Even, you know, we talk about the Salmopeus will do some burrowing. Tapanakinus will do some burrowing. The Pisolotheria will do some burrowing. A lot of slings can be kept terrestrially early on. That's why we can keep them in little vials. They keep them all the same. However, these guys were getting a little larger. And somebody goes, yeah, I think they're a little more semi-arboreal. So I took one of them and I set it up in a semi-arboreal setup and lo and behold it did show me some semi-arboreal tendencies my adult female or sub-adult female right now is in a tank that has a semi-arboreal setup so I gave her some room to burrow but I also gave her the cork bark going up place to hide behind and she's often on the face of that so there's a 
situation where I thought I had the care correct. I had done a lot of research. Everybody said terrestrial, 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 but somebody that had kept them before said, hey, try this out, and we got the right information. So wrong setups, real popular mistake, and one that luckily can usually be easily remedied as long as folks are open-minded. I have heard folks that you try to correct them, and they just go, well, no, this is what I read, and they don't listen to anybody else. Hopefully nobody's listening to this podcast because we don't usually work with those kind of people. But if you're open-minded, always listen to what other people say. And worst case scenario, give them a chance to do both. There's no reason why, as long as you don't give them too much height in the enclosure, you can't give a species that is, for example, the Orphanacus, a chance to do a little climbing if that's something they would prefer. Now, the next one up is more of a beginner one, but it happens quite a bit with beginners, and I have to try to talk them down. Now, again, we're not going to get into the old, old world, new world debate, but this is becomes a problem because usually it means somebody is going more with aesthetics, and a lot of times it doesn't involve a lot of research, but that's choosing spiders or tarantulas by appearance only. We have a lot of folks that will, and, and unfortunately, a lot of folks believe this is not a bad thing. I happen to think you have to do your research before you pick anything up, but there are a lot of beautiful spiders out there. There are a lot of blue spiders, green spiders, orange spiders, every color of the rainbow, purple spiders. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is people will get into the hobby. They'll start researching and they'll see some, usually the reaction's like this. They pull up a picture of, we'll go Peace Letharia Metallica, usually the popular one for the snap too. And they go, oh my God, how does that spider even exist? And then they do some research. They find the, the common name and they look up Goody Sapphire Ornamental. They get all these pictures like this thing does exist. Oh my Lord, it's so blue. It's so beautiful. I need to have this. And next thing you know it, they're ordering one online. And then I'm getting the email going, hey, I might have bit off a little more than I can chew because I have the spider coming or the spider is already here. And I just did some more reading on them and realized that they are very fast. And usually what they come at me with is they are very fast and aggressive. So what I will do is try to talk them down and be like, all right, here's the deal. You know, try to put them in something that allows them to grow. They grow quickly. So you want to give them some room so you don't have to do many rehouses. You know, I'm not going to go into the whole spiel, but I try to make them feel more confident because the spider's not going anywhere. They have the spider now. They Now they need the tools to be able to negotiate this uh, possibly steep learning curve they're going to have with this spider as it grows. I think I shared the story before that when I first started getting really big into the hobby and I was sitting, I picture it clear as day, sitting at my computer desk in my old house and I'm looking up spiders and the P. Metallica came up and I went, this thing is gorgeous. It also freaked me out. I think I've mentioned before as well that P. Solitheria was the last species of tarantula that I would look at pictures of and get scared. Like I still had my arachnophobia and they just looked menacing. Plus all I'd read about them is how nasty they were. The venom is terrible. They're going to bite you. Anyway, I remember looking up that one. I remember looking up the first one. I decided I wanted a blue spider. It was going to be the quote-unquote cobalt blue, the H. lividus. And I was so excited. I put one in my cart. And I'm like, all right, let me just put this in the cart for now. But I, I should probably do some more research. And I went out started looking up information on it, and immediately came to the conclusion that there was no way, shape, or form I was ready for the spider. First off, I read that it was moisture-dependent, and I had no experience with moisture-dependent tarantulas. Quite frankly, the whole idea of having to keep a tarantula moisture would die scared the heck out of me, like many folks to get into keeping the moisture-dependent species. You have this idea in your head that you had to constantly harp on and make sure, constantly add water, spray them down and everything. I wasn't ready for that yet. And then I read about the behavior of them and how supposedly 
again, aggressive they were, nasty they were, and I'm like, I'm not ready for that spider yet. So luckily, I stopped myself, but that, you know, a different person, or I don't know, me on the wrong day, I, I wouldn't do it. It's just, I was very careful and very cautious and prudent getting into the hobby, but there are some people that will go, they'll drop that thing in their cart, you know, there's only a few of them there, they want to make sure they get it, they pull the trigger, they order it, and then it's, uh-oh, they do the research. So I've heard, the only reason I mentioned this one, there are a lot of folks out there who will come on to comments and we will be talking about like old worlds or something. For example, like I did a video recently about the best starter old worlds, the ones just the old worlds to start with when you're ready to make that transition to keeping those spiders. And I can't tell you how many folks will come by and say something like, hey, if you see a spider and you love the way it looks, get it. You'll figure it out. And I, I don't quite agree with that. Some people can jump right in. Some people can go out there and pick up that cobalt blue and go, oh, wow, this isn't that hard. I've I've kept reptiles before. I've kept uh, dart frogs before. I know how to keep you know moisture levels up or whatever. And they just jump right into it. They set it up. It's no problem. But a lot of people don't. A lot of people will struggle with those moisture requirements. So we're not just talking about old world tarantulas here, more defensive tarantulas. We're talking about any tarantula that means you're leveling up as far as keeping. Tarantulas with new requirements. Sometimes just moving to arboreals. Arboreals freak people out. They've kept basic uh, terrestrial species and arboreals a step up. It's moisture-dependent species can be a step up. Again, old worlds can be a step up. Some of the new world arboreals, I'm looking at you, Salma P.S., can all be a step up. We're talking about any spider that may require the person to have some extra experience before they jump in, before they're going to feel comfortable with them. Now, obviously, we've gone over this ad nauseum. Some people jump right in, but I can tell you a lot of folks will buy spiders. They will tell me, and I luckily, a lot of them will reach out beforehand, and they'll go, listen, I absolutely 100% want an m do you think I'm ready for this spider? And then I'll ask some questions and we'll find out, if, you know, give them an idea. Like, I can't tell you if you're ready, but you can tell you if you're ready. It happens a lot where people, because it is, I mean, let's call it as it is. A lot of the reasons why people get so many tarantulas, there's so many beautiful, different looking ones out there with colors and patterns to buy. It's that whole Pokemon got to catch them all thing. You, you pick up one, all of a sudden somebody puts one up and it's a beautiful orange spider. I need to have that. And then somebody puts one up and it's purple. I need to have that. It's part of it is the aesthetics of them. It really attract people. You can have all these. I know when I bring people into my tarantula room and show it off, I get the flashlight out and we show them ones of all different colors. It blows their mind. So that's a big part of it. So unfortunately, that means a lot of people are going to jump in. They're going to see these on Instagram. They're going to see them on YouTube. They're going to see pictures on Facebook. They're not going to do their homework. They're going to go, I want this spider because it's pretty and they're going to go out and buy them. And unfortunately, sometimes that ends up with somebody with the spider that they are ill-equipped to care for or that they're scared of. And that can be a major problem. Now, the next one up, I picked this order because it sometimes falls in line with or sometimes follows the one we just talked about, which is people choosing spiders by their appearance only before they do the homework, recognizing whether or not there are care needs that they are not ready to provide. The next one is people who put slings in overly large enclosures. Now, we can argue all day about the fact that there are folks out there who say there's no such thing as too large of a sling enclosure because in the real world, they have all the space they want. Well, yes, and they have drought, they have weather problems, they have birds and other animals that are out there eating them. They have constant food running around. It, you can't compare 
keeping something in your home to what it's like on the outside world. And the reason why we put slings in smaller enclosures, the biggest two reasons, A, so the sling can find food, and B, so we can monitor the sling better. There's nothing worse, and believe me, I know because I get people that email me all the time or message me all the time about, hey, I have a sling in the enclosure. I'm not sure if it's still in there. What should I do? Happens all the time. And a lot of times it's a larger enclosure. It can be a smaller one. I've had slings in the little dram vials that I can't find the sling and I'm not sure if it's in there and I start to worry, is there a hole too big? Is it dead? The idea of putting them in the small enclosures, A, it's temporary. It's not. We're not saying keep your spiders in tiny enclosures their whole life. That's not the deal. I often encourage folks that get spiders, uh, larger tarantulas, that to try experimenting with larger enclosures. Just make sure they're appropriate. Don't put a you know six-inch spider in a giant 100-gallon tank that is three feet tall because your spider is going to climb, fall on one of those lovely little decorations you put in there and kill itself. But if you put it in something that has enough substrate, has plants, has place to hide multiple, yeah, go for it. They will. They'll spread all out. And at that point, it's not going to be as big of a deal with them not being able to find prey. They will find the prey eventually. You drop a few crickets in, they'll eventually wander over to their den. They'll be out at night waiting. They're going to get the prey. Smaller ones, smaller slings, they tend to hunker down in a small place. They may burrow. Now, if you got them in a huge container and they burrow you're not sure where the burrow is the spider can burrow too deeply we have established that there are spiders that will burrow if you give them too much dirt when their slings get too far underneath the ground and not resurface to eat if that should happen it's a large enclosure and you can't find the spider your spider is going to die it's going to starve to death in the bottom of that burrow you also need to know what the spider is when you add moisture if you put it in a giant thing i had somebody once freaking out because they had picked up an H. lividus sling, they put it in a very large container with a lot of substrate, could not find the spider, poured a bunch of water in because they were afraid that it was going to get too dry, and then realized they flooded the spider's burrow. That's, we put them in smaller things because it's easier to maintain the correct conditions in there. It's easier to keep an eye on the spider, and the spider can find the food because that's what you want early on. You want that spider to be able to find the food as quickly as possible so it can eat, so it can grow, so it can put on size, and so we can stop worrying about our slings dying because obviously we've talked about it ad nauseum. Slings are more fragile than their juvenile or adult counterparts. It's just the way it is. It's a, it's a fact. They lack the cuticle. It, smaller slings lack the cuticle that allows them to maintain moisture. They can dry out and become dehydrated much more quickly. They can be a little more finicky at that point. I have slings that, you know, they won't eat live food to a certain point because in the wild they would scavenge feed with their mothers or they would find smaller things on the ground. There's a litany of issues you can have with slings. So you want to be able to monitor them very carefully so that if your thing isn't eating the pre or if you're putting pre-killed food in you can tell if it's getting the pre-killed food you can tell that it's finding the food you can tell where the spider is when you need to add more moisture to the enclosure all of those reasons are why we keep the slings in smaller enclosures. So the reason why I brought this one up after choosing spiders by appearance only is because I, and this is rule number one, this is how you can tell, in my opinion, somebody that's probably not ready for the spider they're going to get when they tell me I'm going to get an OBT and I'm just going to put it in an adult enclosure so I don't have to transfer it. Okay, right there you're telling me you're too scared to do one of the basic activities of good husbandry. We Rehousings are part of keeping spiders. And again, I agree with putting faster growing spiders and faster growing defensive spiders in larger enclosures closures to start so that you can see the spider as it grows but still give it enough space that it can go through a few molts before you have to rehouse it but I'm not a fan of folks taking what is usually an old world or a nastier 
new world species and dropping it into a giant enclosure because they are afraid to do the rehousing. So right there, you're showing you're probably not ready for this animal because at some point or another, you're going to have to rehouse it. And now when you do it, you're going to be doing it with a, an adult possibly or a young adult as opposed to a larger sling or juvenile, which would be a little more manageable. And again, it's usually the folks that are trying to pick something up that they may not be ready for, and they've come up, and and a lot of times they approach me with that, I have a really good idea, I know I probably shouldn't have the spider yet, but what I'm going to do is just put it in a really large adult enclosure, because I'm afraid to rehouse it, and now I don't have to worry about it, and they're like, this. you can tell some people, and I'm not making fun of them, I get it, I get the thought process behind it. In their mind, this is a great solution to avoiding any possible chance of getting bit. I'm just going to drop it in its adult enclosure. But then the people that do it, I can't tell you how many times I get the, hey, I have my piece of Letheria regalis. Um, I'm not sure if it's eating. I haven't seen it for a while. I go, hey, send me some some photos of the setup. And it's an 8x8x12 eight by eight by Exoterra Nano. And there's this teeny tiny little sling somewhere in there that I can't find. Yeah, that's not a good deal. That's somebody who is probably not ready to keep this spider that is doing things to make it easier and safer for them, but that is probably putting the spider in jeopardy and not providing the spider with the best environment to grow and to prosper. So that's something that pops up quite a bit. And again, it's usually, I don't want to, it's not just beginners. It is some beginners, but it is folks that want to make that transition to old worlds. I get it all the time. And luckily, a lot of folks will ask me about it ahead of time. And I will give my two cents, but then it's up to them to figure out what they're going to do. I have a lot of folks that do send me photos that there are these setups with these little teeny tiny old world spiders. And I feel terrible for the spiders and these big setups. You're like, I can't tell if it's eating. Well, of course you can't tell if it's eating because God only knows where the prey is. The spider doesn't know where the prey is. You can't even find the spider. Not a good deal. So the overly large sling closure, again, if you're putting something, and I alluded to this earlier, uh, uh Theraphosa species, uh, Salmopia species, H. gigas, uh, ones, the fast growing ones, the ones that eat well, grow fast. There's nothing wrong with putting them in larger enclosures. When I do my care videos, I will mention, hey, this is one you probably want to, you can probably start in something bigger. Like Peace with are usually very active hunters. So if you put them in a larger enclosure, not over the top larger, but give them some more space, they'll probably do just fine with it. But there are a lot of spiders that doesn't make any sense for, and you're just basically creating a recipe for disaster where your spider isn't going to find food, you're not going to find your spider, and you're going to be freaking out. The next one's another one that generally hits beginners worse, but I have spoken to some people that have been in the hobby for a while that this happens to. You find there's a species of spider you're absolutely dying to get, and you're looking everywhere, and finally you locate one at this dealer that you haven't heard of before called Backwater Reptiles, and they have it in stock. Even better, they have females in stock. Sex females will deliver them right to your door, and so you take your hard-earned money, you try to purchase a female of this species, and well, we all know where this is going if anybody's heard of backwater reptiles. They are a bane, they're a bane to animals in general. I just It's one of the only places I will call out because I constantly get emails from people with these horrible stories about them. They drop ship the animals, they don't know what they're getting. People, I mean, it's one of those deals where if you order from them, you get people that you don't know if you're getting the right sex, you don't know if you're getting the right spider, and there's a good chance your spider's going to be dead or injured when it comes to you. But people, the, this one falls under the heading of folks buying from disreputable dealers. And we're talking about like backwater reptiles, some pet stores. I don't want to go on a tirade about pet stores, but pet stores, generally speaking, there are some good ones out there. There's always somebody that comes up and says, oh, there's this pet store down here that's really good. I know there's good people out there. You can't 
it, it doesn't cover everybody, but the majority, especially when you're talking about the big box pet stores, PetSmart, Petco, not the YouTuber, because every time I say Petco, somebody thinks I'm talking about the YouTuber, and somebody's like, why are you bagging on Petco? It's a store over here. It's spelled differently. Those places do not care about the animals. So there are people there. They Sometimes you'll find places that have employees that give a crap and they actually do the research and they try to improve the conditions there. But overall, they're selling the animals because they want to make money. They're, they don't care about proper husbandry. And sadly, this does extend to some mom and pop's pet stores. There are some out there that I, and I've always talked to people about if you're going to be one of those people that buys or rescues, quote unquote, rescues a tarantula, the, there's one theory that you're basically feeding into it because now they've sold that tarantula to you, they're going to get more. And I agree that you shouldn't just go and buy the tarantula, go, I'm saving you, walk away. My big thing is if you're going to buy one, try to talk to the people there and improve the conditions. And for those of you that go in and you just buy one and you're like, I know it's wrong, but I can't help it, I get it because nobody wants to see an animal suffering. If you're sitting there looking at this little asimani curled up in this tiny little enclosure with a bunch of crickets bouncing around it, it's very tough to go, well, buddy, you're going to have to die because I don't want to support this. I get it. I do. But that's why I try to encourage people to get a hold of somebody and try to uh, in, create some change, try to explain, hey, there's ways to do this. I'd be more than happy to help out. But I digress. What happens is folks look for certain species. They see that they're at a pet store. They see that they're being sold by one of these reptile dealers. As a rule of thumb, if somebody, if you go to an online business and their concentration is reptiles, don't buy arachnids from them, or at least do your homework ahead of time and make sure that they are a reputable dealer. Because the problem is, and I've experienced this at shows, I've experienced this from pet dealers online, those folks that focus only on reptiles, generally the arachnids, the spiders, the scorpions are an afterthought. They're just another way to get more eyes in their shop. They don't care for them correctly. They don't know a lot about them. There are some exceptions out there. Great Basin Serpentarium, I believe it is. Uh, Joey is fantastic, knows his stuff. I would, I, I've ordered from them before. I still have, the first time I ordered was several years ago. I still have all the spiders. They're healthy. They're great. There are ones out there, but again, do your homework. Don't just go out and say, well, these guys have the spider that I've been trying to find. Therefore, I'm going to buy from. Do your homework first because you're going to regret it if you order from one of these. Again, like the backwater reptiles, every month or so, I get an email from somebody going, hey, I just listened to your video where you talked about them. God, I wish I had heard this beforehand. And they tell me these horror stories. And some of them are really truly terrible. And that's not the only ones. There are other ones out there. I'm not going to go into it mentioned by name because somebody's going to get all butthurt and come back at me and say I'm tearing people down. But there are other dealers out there that if you do your homework, they find out they're into shady practices. They have issues with customer service. There's one out there now that was a big one a little while back that I've been hearing several complaints about that is not returning. They're selling gift uh, mystery boxes that haven't been delivered in a year. They're not responding to phone calls. They're not responding to emails. They're not responding on their Facebook page. That type of stuff kills me because I've had people that like they come in and you try to convince them there are good people selling these things online. They get one of these scumbag dealers that are only in to make a buck and then they get in over their heads and they screw everybody over and then they walk away from the hobby because they're like this thing's all corrupt. And I know a lot of us are out there shaking our heads going, oh, there's a lot of great people out there. I know. But unfortunately, if that's your first experience ordering, you go in, you find the spider you really want, you order from these people and then they never respond to you that's a tough one to swallow. A lot of people walk away and go, I don't trust online dealers. Because a lot of people, when you tell them that you can buy tarantulas online, their first reaction is, I don't trust that. I don't, I'm worried about the spiders. I don't see how they ship them. I'd worry about not getting my money stolen. 
and then it happens to them and they walk away. So definitely a big one is buying from disreputable dealers. Sometimes it takes a while for them to show their true colors. Sometimes it takes a few years for people to start, you know, the, the criticisms to start accumulating for people to start coming forward and going, yeah, I tried to support them, but they're really dropping the ball. And unfortunately I've made the mistake before. It's one of the reasons I no longer, I, years ago I took a, some freebies. I didn't feel comfortable doing it. I should not have done it, but somebody's like, Hey, I want to send you a package. And I had heard nothing but good things about these people. And quite frankly, at that point, I didn't have the money to buy anything. And I'm like, you know what, go ahead. And they sent me the spiders. I did a review on it. And a lot of people are like, man, this is thank you. Thank you so much. This place is awesome. They went out, started buying spiders. This person apparently had some issues could no longer fill the orders, the pre-orders they were taking. It turned into a big debacle. People were getting screwed out of money and the person just disappeared. And I felt partially responsible for that. So there are ones out there that start off as good, but my advice to people is always lay low for a little while, see what happens. Because what happens is a lot of these folks open up, they start selling spiders, everything's hunky-dory. Everybody is always looking for the newest great dealer. So everybody, you'll see all this buzz on the boards, all this buzz on the Facebook group. These people are great. They're so nice, blah, blah, blah. Give it time. See how it goes lay back, see what type of reviews, read the negative reviews. Is there a trend? A lot of times you go on, you'll see negative reviews where people didn't get their spiders or their spiders were shipped poorly and they go, oh, they took care of it. But those start to send up some red flags. So always do your homework about dealers. When in doubt, ask. When in doubt, pay attention to the negatives. Everybody's going to have negatives. The greatest dealers out there, the best, most reputable people out there are going to have situations where they get into it with a customer. Anybody that's done customer service before knows there are those people that, again, there could be a legitimate issue flat out. There's situations where people overreact and get all mad because something doesn't go their way. And then they go out and try to tarnish the reputation. Just pay attention to that stuff. Do your homework beforehand. So you don't have a situation where you buy a bunch of spiders and they're, they arrive dead or you get the wrong spiders or you buy a a mystery box that you're waiting a year for. That's just garbage. So definitely do your homework on dealers. Talk to people. Look at the good. Look at the bad. Look at how many people they sell to. Compare it and and know what you're getting into before you use your heart. Put your hard-earned money down and, you know, A, get screwed or B, accidentally support somebody that does not deserve your support. It should not be in the hobby in the first place. The next two, I'm going to kind of group together because it's, and again, we always talk about gray areas and gray zones and this, this is definitely a gray zone and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these because I've spent so many hours over the years between my videos and the podcast explaining my thoughts on, but we're going to go with the first one is making the jump to old worlds too soon. Now there's going to be a, a sister to this one in a moment and I'm not, again, this one's been covered quite a bit. Obviously, there are some folks who can jump right into old worlds and have no issue with it, but I do encounter many folks that do jump into old worlds before they are probably ready. And I've always said my rule of thumb for when you're ready to jump in old worlds, first off, you need to have your basic husbandry down. If you're asking questions about hydration, like, hey, how much is too much water? Where should I dump the water in? Should I give them a water dish? Do I need a sponge? you're not ready. You don't have your basic husbandry down. If you are going to old worlds, you should have your rehousing techniques down. That's the big one. That's the one that I, I try to say to everybody. Do you feel comfortable rehousing spiders? Do you have a way to do it, whether it's in the bathtub, whether it's on your dinner table, whether you have a special room for it, whether you're using a lot of folks are starting to move to the butterfly nets now for some of them to make sure they don't get out. Whatever it may be, you need to feel fairly comfortable in your rehousings because again, we talked about it many times before, Folks will say before you move into old worlds, you need experience. Well, one of the things you need to be experienced in and build upon is your are your rehousings. You need to be comfortable with those because the rehousings are probably going to go fairly similar to 
the rehousings of the New World species you are keeping. It's just the fact that there's the extra threat of a spider that is not going to flick hairs at you. It could stand its ground. It could threat posture, which some of us joke, but it's the easiest way to couple them when they're threat posturing because they're not moving anywhere. But for other folks, that can actually be very intimidating. And then there is the fact that if you screw up and you do get bit, they proffer a much more nasty, painful, possibly debilitating bite. That tends to freak people out. So if you're already struggling with rehousings with a, you know, your quote unquote beginner new world species, if you went to rehouse your, I don't know, bee hammeri and it got out and it was running around the table and you're freaking out, you're not ready. Take a, take a deep breath, get some more transfers under your belt, get your system down. If you're somebody that feels very comfortable, like I always, my big thing is the cup method. I, I honestly, you know, everybody's got their methods or whatnot. I find that's one of the best ways to do it. I hear from a lot of people. They're like, man, I never even thought I put a cup over it. Suddenly I feel much more secure. I love it because you feel secure. The spider cuts down airflow. The spider will immediately feel more secure. Great way to do it. But whatever method you use, make sure you're comfortable before you move into old worlds, because that's the big, that's the experience you're going to want. Yes, you're right. You can't get experience working with old worlds until you're actually working with old worlds. However, you can get experience in basic husbandry first. And if you don't have that down, it can be a recipe for disaster because as soon as something goes wrong, I've heard it many times, people freak out. There's a spider out, they're spazzing, people are screaming, the wife's coming in. What did you do? Not a good situation. And when people freak out, they tend to screw up. So suddenly your spider goes to bolt and your idea is to put your hand in its way or you try to cup it, but you catch a leg, the spider turns around, bites. You see where I'm going with this. You need to feel comfortable so that when something does or if something does go wrong, you have the muscle memory to react correctly. I, I always talk about the fact that when you're doing a rehousing and the spider starts to bolt, take a step back. Let it, it's it's going to stop eventually. I mean, I know some people will rush in to try to grab it, but that's where the mistakes happen. Take a step back, let the spider calm down, reassess, and then try to get the spider when it's easier and safer for both of you. But definitely the folks making the jump to old world too soon, that can be an issue. It And it's different from everybody. Some people can jump in. They're in a couple months. They're in old worlds. They're doing fine. I've heard other people that it's like, hey, I've been keeping for 10 years. I finally feel ready. It's a personal thing. However, let's slide into the other one that's kind of the opposite of this one. And it's hobbyists not making the jump to old worlds. The ones that... and and. To be clear, there are some people that the risk is not worth it. I am 100. You have my utmost respect and support. I would never try to convince somebody. If somebody says, I don't want to keep these in their head right now, there's a mental block. It doesn't make any sense for me to convince them otherwise. I mean, some of these people do eventually see enough videos, see enough. I love when people say, you know, I never thought I'd keep old worlds, but I've been watching you work with them and see they're not, they're not necessarily that bad. I'm going to give them a shot. I love that, but I would never try to convince somebody that says, I never want to keep them. You have to keep them. I might say, well, you know, that's, I totally understand that, you know, keep watching videos. Maybe someday you'll change your mind. But I, I do hate when people come on and go, what are you talking about? You're missing out. I do feel like they're missing out, but if they're not ready, they're not ready. However, I think there are a lot of folks out there. They're just, they have it in their head that these are just these terrible, nasty. And again, there's so much stuff out there. There are so many YouTubers out there. that are willing to capitalize on that fear factor and show these guys, you know, antagonize them, pour water on them, blow on them, trick them out with blades of 
grasp it. Oh, look at how aggressive it is. I, I hate that crap because it just gives people the wrong impression about these old world species. The majority of us that keep them, love them, and don't find them really to be much different than their new world counterparts. I talk to a lot of folks that keep them. We often talk about the fact that old worlds are often more predictable than the new worlds. So that's a problem sometimes in that people don't want to give those old worlds a shot. Someday I will finish this video I've been making about old worlds. I, it'll be my... If it gets done, it'll be one of the things I'm most proud of doing because I really want to look at old world tarantulas. And I think I did the podcast of this and really break down what is really the risk? What are, what are we talking about here? We talk about them like they're demons, yet you'd be hard-pressed to find all these cases of people getting bit and them getting out in their house and attacking them while they're sleeping. It's just nonsense. So hopefully I can get that out someday and change some minds. But I do feel like that some folks, unfortunately, they'll say, I'm never going to keep them or I'm not ready. They don't make that jump. I do feel like they're missing out up to the individual. If you're somebody out there listening to this right now and you're like, I do not see myself ever keeping them, I totally get it. I'm not trying to commit you, but I do think that there is a lot to love with old worlds. And I do think that many folks that do get into it and start to get comfortable realize they're really not all that people make them out to be. The next one's one I've covered quite a bit. So again, I'm not going to get heavy into it because I've done whole podcasts on this topic, but obsessing over humidity and heat still is an issue in the hobby. It drives me nuts. I've been doing this for many, many years. And one big goal, I remember turning to Bill Angle, even if I could just get people to stop freaking out over these arbitrary heat and humidity requirements, it would I would be able to walk away at the end of the day when, when I finally get tired of all this stuff and go, hey, I did something. But it's it's an uphill battle because there are still folks out there that put in information and say they have to be kept warmer, that they have ideal temperatures, that you shouldn't keep them under 80. They believe it. They have healthy spiders. It, it, it's hard to convince them otherwise. But again, I have healthy spiders. I've never done that. I mean, right now my room's sitting at about 72, 73 degrees. They're doing just fine. I've had spiders kept at 68 degrees that do just fine. Again, I'm not going to go on a Tom Moran tirade about this stuff, but I do feel like this is still remains. I have people that will email me, and this is what drives me nuts. I, Tom, I love your love your content. I've watched all your videos. I got this spider. I watched your care video. I'm having a hard time because the temperature's only 82. Is that my spider going to be okay? And it's like, for crying out loud, if you watch my stuff, you saw I put the notes in there saying that they can drop down to the high 60s. It'll be perfectly fine. Your spider just might not grow as quickly. But obviously, they're getting information from somewhere that they're putting together with mine and thinking, oh my God, I have to do this. And the problem is, it does freak people out. When you have somebody telling you, you need to measure the humidity, it needs to be 85%. That's that type of statement from somebody who's keeping a lot of tarantulas that carries weight. And then when you have people going, go, wow, they come from a place where it gets 95 degrees. So obviously they have to be kept warmer. Then you start thinking, oh, I'm keeping it wrong. I, I know this guy over here, Tom, says that they don't need those high temperatures, but they come from this place. They don't look at burrows. They don't look at weather changes, seasonal changes. They don't look at the fact that, hey, spiders live in some very inhospitable places. That doesn't mean that that's their ideal conditions. It means that's where they live. Unfortunately, you have to tolerate that kind of stuff. I always use the example. I'm in New England. It can get 95 degrees and super humid here. I hate that weather. That's not my ideal temperature. My ideal temperature is probably around 50. So we always need to keep that in mind. We always need to remember that these guys aren't just adaptable. They can live comfortably in a lot of different situations. I I know some folks will come on and go, you're not doing the spider right. It's being tortured by being kept at only 70 degrees. No, that's nonsense. I don't believe that at all. There's folks that do breeding. All kinds, like Think about it. 
if the conditions were that bad. Now, can you keep a spider in bad conditions and have it thrive? Yes. And I think that's where we get to the tricky spot because people could easily point to my collection and go, hey, just because your spiders are all seemingly doing well doesn't mean that's the perfect you know, situation for them. I get that. But they can be bred in those conditions. They will eat in those conditions. They will mature in those conditions. It kind of points to the fact the spiders are doing okay. So definitely one that's still an issue is folks obsessing over those arbitrary, you know, ideal temperature and humidity requirements that's still a huge problem in the hobby and unfortunately i don't see it going away anytime soon the next one i've noticed uh happening a little bit recently and i've and to be full disclosure we all run into this especially when we've been in the hobby long enough and kept spiders long enough and start feeling comfortable around them and that would be getting too comfortable with rehousings i've spoken to many people that will sit there and come onto my videos and go yeah i used to use the cups but now i realize i really don't need them which is fine do what works for you but I've also had folks who come on and go, yeah, I got my spider and I tried to poke it. We call it the poke and pray over here where you poke the spider and pray it just doesn't bolt and go where, you know, nuts. I've had folks come by and go, yeah, you know, I just put the two cages next to each other and I went to poke my spider and it turned around, ran up the, the paintbrush. Or I turned to poke my spider and it bolted out over the enclosure, out in one enclosure, out the other enclosure, and it was on the table. Or, you know, I got really comfortable one day and I went to just kind of put the spider in my hand and it freaked out and kicked a bunch of hair in my hand. Whatever it may be, I think it's always important to remember that you should never, ever become complacent when rehousing spiders. I have folks that will basically tell me, hey, I set up this big thing with cardboard. I was very careful. I know you probably make fun of me. Not at all. You're being smart. Bottom line, my big thing is trying to make sure there's no way the spider can escape. I try to really limit it. I've done a lot of videos showing how to make, you know, use catch cups with cardboard and stuff to really 100% make sure there's no place the spider can get out of. That makes the keeper feel more confident. That eliminates or at least drastically reduces the chances of the spider escaping. And unfortunately, some folks will come on and laugh about that. Why are you treating it like it's a radioactive monster? Just get your hand in there. Just get a brush in there. That's great. That may work for you, but I will tell you at the end of the day, if your spider gets spooked and you're shoving a paintbrush up its butt, it's going to bolt right out of that enclosure where mine has nowhere to go. And plus, when you have the cup, again, it cuts down the airflow. It keeps the spider from being scared. Now, again, if you're somebody out there that doesn't use a cup method, I'm not saying everybody has to use a cup method. I'm just explaining why I continue to use it, even though I probably feel pretty, there's no doubt about it. I've done the poke and pray a couple times before. It's just, there's always that moment where you poke the spider and realize the spider could go here, 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 here. You start looking at realizing there's a many ways this could go wrong. Some people do it all the time, have no problems. There are cases, a lot of the terrestrials, like the slower moving terrestrials, you put one enclosure next to the other one, you give it a little poke, it just, you know, wanders over in the other enclosure. That's perfectly fine. But I'm talking about folks who get to that point where they're so comfortable, they start getting a little cocky with it. They start thinking, oh, I don't need any of this stuff. And that's when mistakes can happen. So again, I get that you're not always going to need to, you know, armor up and have all the cardboard and everything out there. Totally understand that. Some people will continue to do that. That's cool too. But don't ever get to the point where you start just, eh, no problem. We're just going to poke this guy. He's going to go in or get lazy about it or get complacent with it because that could lead to errors and mistakes. The next one up, I thought about leaving off because I didn't want to come across like some elitist or something. And I hope people realize that I'm not in, but it is one that comes up quite a bit. I see it in the comments of my own videos, and that is folks that are starting to give advice a little too soon. And I think everybody that keeps spiders has, and for even if you've only kept for a week, you have experience that can be valuable to others. Let's make that very, very clear. I've had people come on and go, I've only had a spider for this long, and these are some of the things I've noticed and blah, blah, blah. There's nothing wrong with that. What I have a problem with is folks that come on and start giving folks advice, and you can tell it's just stuff that they have heard 
It's not stuff they've experienced personally or they've seen something in another video or they've seen something in their own collection and they haven't been, you know, they haven't been keeping all that long and they assume that that's normal and they start giving information to other people. That one can be kind of damaging because there are, and again, it, everybody has something to share. I, I don't want this to look like I'm bashing people for sharing. We all have something. And just because, you know, if you've read something and it's good information and you say, hey, I saw on this thing, uh, on this YouTuber or on this website, A, B, and C, there's nothing wrong with that. That's totally cool. It's when people try to, how do I put it? They, they try to pretend like they're a little more knowledgeable than they are. They're not coming out like, hey, I've only been keeping a little while, but I've read this. Or I saw this in that YouTuber. The ones that kind of come up like they're experts. So we had one, for example, the other day that I can think of off the top of my head is I was talking, it was on a video with Peace Letheria, and somebody came on and said, hey, I'm looking to get into Peace Letheria. What would be a good one to start with? And somebody came on and chimed on, oh, Definitely the Piornata. Um, in my experience, those are the some of the calmer peaceful ethereum. I'm like, oh boy, actually, usually Rufalata and Ornata are the ones because they're the bigger ones and they're usually listed as some of the more high strong ones. I wouldn't normally recommend those. So I came back on and go, really? You know, which species have you kept? And his response was, oh, I don't keep any pokies yet, but I'm looking into, at getting into them. So now you've just told this person to go out and get a spider that you have zero experience with that many of us would go, no, 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 you don't want to start there. So we're talking about that kind of stuff. And I didn't mean to call the guy out. I was just kind of curious because folks that kept pokies, I can tell you, everybody has different ones that they think are, you know, more laid back. It's kind of tough coming up with a list of starter pokies. I usually go with Regalis or Vitata, but I have other folks that say the Subfusco, whatever it may be. Everybody's got their own opinions. But to find out that this guy was saying this with such authority and hadn't even kept any yet kind of bothered me. So giving you know, again, be reach out, talk to people, participate in groups. If you've seen something, share the information. Just be careful. You're not trying to become one of those folks that tries to hide their inexperience and sound like they know a lot more than they do by essentially regurgitating stuff they've heard from other people. Don't that's that's what I'm talking about. And there, I I don't see from the folks that I interact with, or you know, on my videos and stuff, I don't see a lot of that from my my regulars, we'll put it that way. These are good people. A lot of them have a lot of experience now, which is great. When I'm talking to people that have been in the hobby 10 years and they're watching my videos, that's like the mo the biggest compliment because I always worry, again, that it's only going to be people just getting in and they they get my information. They go, all right, this guy's boring now, move on. So that's great. So my I don't have a lot of problems with this. It's usually people, new people on that jump on, start talking about things, and then you kind of quiz them on it and realize they really don't know what they're talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Or Worst case scenario, the ones that get a couple spiders, get their camera out, jump on YouTube, and suddenly they're authorities on everything. Because God forbid you admit you don't know what you're talking about on YouTube, you're not going to have all those people coming to you for advice. You're not going to get all the you know comments and adulation and, and views. So it, it can manifest in many ways. But just make sure if you're somebody that's giving advice, make sure your advice is sound. Make sure that, you know, again, citing where you got it from is always a good thing because then people can go and check it out. I was People will tell me stuff and I'll go, where'd you get that from? What, what Facebook group was it on? What article did you read? because I want to go check out the whole thing myself. Just be cognizant of what level you're at and be honest with people when you give out information. And remember, if you don't know the answer to something, don't feel like you have to give it. Now, the next one has been around forever and a lot of us come close to falling into this trap and that is getting too many spiders too fast. 
Uh, we'll keep the YouTube angle out of it because I've covered that angle on it, but it happens to just regular hobbyists. You get into this hobby, you pick up your first spider, and I hear it all the time. I've been researching for six months. I've finally decided to get a T. albopelosis. I've been waiting forever to get the spider. I can't wait to grow it up. And I hear from two months later, I have 48 spiders, which for some people, it's not a big deal. I, I got a lot of spiders fast. I know a lot of people that get a lot of spiders fast, but there are those folks that get out there. They get too many. They get too many different types. They get overwhelmed. And then you start getting the emails about mysterious deaths. Hey, Tom. I started in January with my first sling. I now have 55 spiders, and unfortunately, I've got a lot of deaths lately. I'm finding a lot of things in death curls. And sometimes you come to the conclusion that they've bitten off a little more than they can chew. They've got some moisture-dependent ones that they aren't keeping moist enough because there's not enough time to keep up you know, the spiders correctly, or they just start getting more and more and more. They get overwhelmed. Be very careful. This is one of the, and I've gone over why this hobby is so addictive before. I believe I did a whole podcast on that as well. But it is an addictive hobby. It does attract those of us who have that, we'll call it the collector's gene, where you like getting everything. You, you just research, you make lists, you try to get things on your list. I get it. It's a very, the Pokemon thing, once again, very addictive hobby, pulls a lot of people in, but you need to be careful. You need to work at a pace that you can comfortably, always comfortably manage your collection. There's nothing worse than getting emails. And this happens many, many times. Hey, Tom, I'm getting out of the hobby. My collection is way too big and it's become stressful. And that's sad because you've missed out on some great things. If you've taken your time, you probably would still be in the hobby, still enjoying these animals. There's all the time in the world to get these spiders. So just know the majority of the ones that you see out there that you know you may not have seen before will come back around at some point. If they don't, there's many other spiders to get. Never feel like you have to go out and grab a bunch of stuff quickly. Take your time with it. Enjoy the, I, I mean, I miss when I first got into this. I miss when it was like every couple of months I get like two or three more you know new slings and learning about them and taking the notes and setting them up. I miss that whole period. It was just awesome. And again, I still love them. I come up here today. Billy was laughing. I walk up I'm like, hey, spiders, how's everybody doing this morning? And she giggled at me. I was kind of being funny. But it's like I love being up here. I love being around them. There's no stress because I'm not overwhelmed because I have too many spiders to take care of. And I did allude in an early podcast where I did hit a point once where I felt like I didn't have enough time to care for them properly and it was stressing me out. It was not a good situation. So I realized where my limits were. You know, we made some changes. It all worked out, but that could have been me. It happens to a lot of us. We get to the point where we find this hobby. We have that disposable income. We put everything into it. And next thing you know, it, you walk into a room where it used to be three or four spiders that you were pay taking painstaking care of. And now you've got... 50 and you're like, did I feed these ones? Oh God, I forgot to feed this one. Oh, this one needs a rehouse. Oh God, I got to rehouse this one too. And it becomes stressful. You never want that to happen. That can easily ruin the hobby. And I can tell you for a fact, I've spoken to many, many, many people over the years that have found themselves in that predicament where they love the hobby one minute, a year later, they have too many spiders and they've lost their love for it because it's no longer something that they do that they enjoy and that melts away their stress. It's a cause of their stress. So be very careful with accumulating too many spiders. Take it slow. You got all the time in the world. And if you start getting to to the point where you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed, slow down, figure out a system to take care of the ones you have, try to stay off the stores, try to not check the emails that come out that say, hey, we got new import in, and just back off a little bit. Get your feet back onto you, get comfortable again. There's always, there's always time to get more spiders later on. The next one is one that we have all done. I just recently did again. And I'll admit it, and that is the old digging up buried spiders or not recognizing that spiders that burrow are usually okay. Now, again, I'm going to, there's a caveat to this one because we did have the whole situation with the P. muticus that I covered that the thought process has always been give your burrowing spiders the room to burrow. 
If they don't come up and eat, leave them alone. And for years, we've all lived by that. And for years, many of us have had these mysterious deaths where a spider is burrowed, it's, you know, molted. Next thing you know it, it's been several months, it hasn't come up and eaten. We dig it up and it's dead. And we go, what happened? So there is a situation where spiders, I do believe you can give slings too deep of substrate. They can get down there, they dig. And then we have found out that in the wild, these guys will often, when they dig and burrow, they will find food underground so they don't have to come up. So when your spider is doing that, it's thinking, all right, I don't need to come up. There's going to be something coming through the walls of this burrow, or a lot of them will burrow all the way around the bottom looking for prey. They'll find stuff that, you know, in the wild, they would find burrowing insects and they don't come back up. So that let's take that. I probably shouldn't have begun with that because now everybody's going to be like, there you go. You have to dig them up. But 90, I would say in my history of keeping 99% of the time, the spider is perfectly fine. And we all go through these instances where our spider burrows. I'm talking to my buddy Charles right now, and he's having an issue with one of his. I'm hoping it ends up okay with one of his Therphosinai species. Panamas has, Charles, I hope it's okay talking about this, but um, has burrowed and he's freaking out because he hasn't seen it in a while. I have been there. I know what that's like. It's that point where it's like, all right, is that thing still in there? Is it dead? We've all been there. I shared the story how the first time I ever did this where I actually gave in and dug it up. It was a Hapalopus species Columbia large baby that I had three of them. Two of them I saw all the time. One of them I wasn't seeing at all. I had assumed it was super tiny. It had a bird. I assumed it was dead. I dumped out the enclosure, picked through it with my little paintbrush, and I found a very upset spider in there that was looking at me like if a spider could talk, it was, dude, what the hell? And so we put all the stuff back in, made a little starter burrow, got the little spider back in, and I felt bad, and I apologize, although I doubt it understood me. We've all been there. I just recently did it with one of my spiders. I had a, a thing where one of them did die in the burrow. I was incredibly upset, and usually what happens when something like that happens, it starts freaking out because now you realize it can happen. You can have a situation where, you know, should I have dug it up early? Should I have checked? Usually if it dies in a burrow and it's not a very deep burrow, then you have a situation where you probably couldn't have done anything if you dug it up. It was probably, in this case, it was a sling that didn't look right to begin with. It ate like once, it burrowed, and didn't come back up. I got a funny feeling it was a sick sling, but I will never know. But it did get me freaking out when another one of my specimens did the same thing, burrowed. I didn't see it for a while, and then I saw what I thought was a dead spider inside the burrow. And so I dug it up like an idiot. And guess what? That wasn't a dead spider. It was an old molt. And the spider luckily had hardened up a bit, but was still fairly freshly molted, was not very happy with me. I felt like an idiot. I had to put it back in, try to cover its burrow. I ruined its burrow. It was just a, a terrible situation. And an example of me not following my own rules. You don't dig them up. So we've all been there, recognized most of the time. They're totally okay. I've had folks ask me, when do you bear, when do you finally do it? When do you finally dig them up? And that's a tough one because I've had ones where I've waited a couple months, dug them up, and they're perfectly fine. I felt like an idiot. It depends on the size of the spider. Larger spiders, it's going to take longer to molt. They're going to be down there a lot longer. Uh, smaller spiders, slings, if, they're, if they've been gone for two, three, four months, you may want to check on them. That's usually my rule. That's, that's kind of a long time for any sling. Although I will say, and just to counter that, my grandma stole a Polkerpies and my Afonopelma calcotis. All the, the Polkerpies, I believe, at one point disappeared when they were little tiny slings for over six months. It was it six months? I'm counting on my fingers here. Five months, right around five marks, months. And my Afonopelma calcotis, Nikki, did the same thing. Five months, used to do it every year. So 
even then, it's not worth it. You got to look at the species. You got to, that's the trick is to look at the species, find out, you know, don't just go, is it okay for spiders to do this? Look at the species, look at the size of it. There's a lot of different things you would take into consideration before you dig them up. The grand scheme of things, if you dig them up, the, the one thing you want to worry about, the one thing that's a concern is that you're digging them up after the, while they're molting or, and I have heard of only a couple instances of people who have dug them up and found the spider just freshly molted or in the process of molting. That's a terrible situation. But if you do give in, you dig them up and they're not molting and they're hiding, yes, you've disturbed the spider. Yes, the spider's not going to be happy with you, but it will eventually dig again and should be fine. So, I don't know. There's no real rule of thumb. Most of the time, it's, I would say 90% of the time I get one of these emails or questions, the spider ends up popping out with a new wardrobe and throws its molt out and everything's okay. I would say probably even closer to 95% of the time, it's totally fine. So know that normally there isn't an issue, but if you have one of those situations where you're freaking out, you know that if, if flat out, if you know that the spider molted, you can see the spider and it's been several weeks and the spider has not come back up to eat, that could be an issue. I would encourage carefully opening up the burrow and placing a dead prey item at the top of the burrow. If the spider comes up, generally it, it comes up and eats that prey item, you know that it was one of those deals where it wasn't going to resurface because you thought it was going to have food below. But in most instances, don't dig it up. If it's been several months and you're worried, carefully dig it up, you know, get something out so you can carefully spread the dirt out and be prepared to have, you know, the best case scenario, have another enclosure set up for it. So you can just make it a rehouse. So drop it in a new enclosure, but normally leave them alone. If they're buried, they put, that's their way of putting the do not disturb sign up. Don't panic. Know that your spider, most of the time, the spiders know exactly what they're doing. They're in no danger whatsoever and that you risk doing more harm than good if you dig them up. All right, we're on the second to last one here, and this one I'm not going to go into in great detail because, again, I have covered this in a separate podcast, but it is something that I always like to mention and is something that bears mentioning, and I happened to receive an email from somebody the other day that fit this category. The individual said, you know, they thanked me for the information they had gotten in the hobby. They now had 20 slings, and they kind of sprinkled in there that they had lost five slings in the last month. And it wasn't like, yeah, I thought this was going to be the topic of the conversation would be, hey, I'm not sure what happened with these slings. But it was more like, yeah, I, I have 20 tarantulas. I just lost five slings. Anyway, so I was wondering about this specimen. And I kind of backed up and go, hey, what, what happened with the slings? You know, what's going on? And like, oh, you know, you know some of the slings, you get weak slings. I, I tried to go through. I, I can't think of anything I might have done wrong. My husbandry was fine. So I'm thinking they were all just weak slings. The one of the big issues I have in the hobby is folks that chalk death up to whether it be slings, whether it be, you know, older specimens, they chalk death up to the old. Well, it happens. Well, slings are weak. They die. Well, sometimes spiders die. Again, sometimes that is the case. A lot of times it is the case. A lot of times, a lot of us lose things and we never do figure out exactly what happened. Was it us? Was there something we could have done differently? Was the spider sick? Was it a weak sling? Whatever it may be. I don't think our first reaction should be to just go, oh, slings die. And a lot of people have that philosophy. A lot of folks, unfortunately, won't even try to figure out what they could have done differently. And they just kind of move on and get something else. And in some cases, it could be the sling just died, in which case they get new slings, everything goes fine. I've had other people that have told me, yep, the slings die. And then you dig a little more deeply and you realize, no, the slings died because you weren't keeping them correctly. You know, I had somebody recently, yep, a sudden avicularia death syndrome. You know, I, I bought four slings, three of them are dead. And and come to find out, they send pictures of the enclosures and they're sopping wet. We all know you can't keep them that way. If they get stuffy enclosures, they die. And that person was willing to write it off as just, oh, no, it happens because their husbandry, and unfortunately, again, there's with that, you know, looping back to the old humidity requirement thing. They read somewhere they need to be kept humid. They were keeping them super humid and they ended up with dead spiders. The chalking death up to just, well, it can happen. 
that should be last resort. And again, sometimes it's all you can come up with and you have to kind of just in the end go, well, that, what it, that's what it was. But I think I've alluded to before that I get, I, I'm very hard on myself when something dies. I automatically assume it's me. And that's not necessarily a good thing because there are times where I really, it, it shakes my confidence. I'm, I'm telling a lot of people how to keep these guys. So when I lose one, I want an answer to what happened. If that's because of me, then I want to make sure I improve it. So sometimes at the end of the day, I have to go like the one I talked to about earlier, the sling that burrowed and did didn't come back up and I found it dead. At the end of the day, it didn't seem right to begin with. I don't think that one's on me, but there have been cases where I've looked at it and at the end of the day going, maybe this was me. Maybe I didn't keep it moist enough. Maybe whatever it may be. I just think it's important for those of us getting into the hobby to always take that approach that if we lose something, make sure you exhaust all possibilities. If you're losing multiple spiders, you definitely need to take a step back, reach out, try to reach out for help, ask people, try to figure out what might be going wrong. I have troubleshot with people before and we found some things that could be wrong, some things that they might not have thought about. And that at least makes sure that, you know, obviously you're not going to bring back those dead spiders, but that at least means you learned something from this terrible experience. From this terrible incident, as opposed to just going, well, a bunch of these died, I'm going to get a bunch more, and now they're dying, well, we're going to get a bunch more, I, I, I hate that, I hate that type of mentality, because it's an easy way to just go, well, it's not on me, it, it puts no, there should be a point where the keeper is looking at his or her care, and at least evaluating if something could be changed for next time, so that's a big one for me, and I, I will say the good thing is the majority of folks that contact me are contacting me because li- they're like, listen, I don't know what I did wrong, and sometimes we sit there and I look at the enclosures, I listen to Karen, I go, you know what, it sounds like you were spot on, I don't think it was you, and then sometimes we do look at enclosures and look at what's going on and go, you know what, this might be your issue, but don't just immediately assume that if your spider dies, it was just natural causes. Always give it some thought. Always try to figure out what you could have done differently or what might you might have done differently to have saved the spider. And then after you've exhausted all those possibilities, then it might be time to just go, you know what? It's not me because nobody wants to have that type of, you know, believe me, I've been there, that type of doubt hanging over their head where they think they screwed up. And finally, the last one that's going to be on our list, which is a mistake I've just experienced three times already this week. It happens all the time with new keepers, older keepers. Uh, it's It seems to be just something that we forget to think about. And I think part of it is folks trying to make sure they have the care correct. And when they see this happen, they immediately assume their care is wrong. And so for the last one, we're talking about not giving a tarantula time to settle in before you start panicking about its behavior. And what I mean by that is you'll get folks that will get a new spot. I'll get emails like this. We'll, we'll start this way. Hey, Tom, I love your channel. I just picked up a GBB young adult female and I watched your whole GBB video. I read your article and unfortunately my GBB isn't eating and it's all curled up in the corner of its enclosure. My first question when something like this happens, I'm I'm giving kind of a simplistic one there, but my first question is always, how long have you had this spider? I do have something when people send me an email that it'll ask how long they have the spider, but sometimes they don't fill that in. And I'll get, I picked it up two days ago. And there, right there is the issue that I'm talking about. It's when folks don't take into account that a spider can take several days to a couple weeks, even more, especially for some of the webbing ones. It can take them a while to to settle in and before they start doing that behavior we expect from them. So for example, I will get a lot of folks that will get GBBs. They set them up in an enclosure. It's been three days and they go, Tom, I don't know what's going on. It's hanging out in the top of the enclosure and hasn't webbed at all. Give it time. Give them some time. 
always remember. Now, I have a habit of feeding my spiders almost as soon as I get. It depends on the species, obviously. Some species I know for a fact aren't going to eat right away, so I don't try. A lot of my ones, like anytime I get new for myctopus species, I always drop something in with them because they always eat. So the piece of Lotharia, some of the, you know, the higher strung spiders will usually eat right off the bat, but know that some of them won't. Some spiders will take a couple weeks. I've had spiders take two or three weeks to settle in before they'll actually feel comfortable to eat. Some of them will have to have already been webbing and already have been, or if they're burrowing species, already have started those burrows before they start eating. So if you get a burrowing spider that hasn't found your starter burrow yet, or that you haven't put a piece of cork bark in with a starter burrow underneath it, so it's just cowering in a corner, it's probably not going to eat. That's not a sick spider. That's not a spider that's, you know, unhealthy. It's a spider that is stressed out because it doesn't recognize its surroundings. It does not feel comfortable. It does not feel secure enough to eat. The problem, why this one becomes such a big problem is a lot of times folks will email me after they've already made adjustments to the husbandry and the spider hasn't been able to settle in. So for example, I had somebody with the GBB one, for example, say they were worried the spider wasn't coming down because the substrate was too dry. So they basically moistened down a bunch of the substrate. And now the thing's really clinging to the top of the corner because GBBs, older GBBs, do not necessarily care for humidity or do care for moisture very much. So there's a situation where they didn't give it enough time to settle in, and now they are reacting to the fact that the spider hasn't settled in by messing up what they had set up. I've had other people before. They get the new spider, they put it in the enclosure, they try to feed it, it doesn't eat, they go, oh, this one doesn't eat crickets, so they're out trying to buy every type of feeder you can imagine, and guess what? It won't eat dubia, it won't be, eat bee lads, it won't eat mealworms, it won't eat the, the whatever those blue things are. It's not going to eat anything yet because A, it could be in primo, but B, it hasn't, they'll send me pictures of the spider and the stress pose in the corner, like that thing hasn't settled in yet, give it some time to settle in. It's always important before we panic and start making changes to the enclosure that honestly just lengthen that acclimation period and sometimes create changes that can harm the spider in instances where they like it dry and it suddenly like my avicularia isn't webbing so I poured a bunch of water in that leads us to doing things that not only make that period longer so now you're gonna have you're you're basically compounding your problem because the spider hasn't settled in it's only been a few days and you just went in changed its whole surrounding around again now it's gonna take even longer for it to settle in so that tends to be an issue and sometimes pushes people to do things that can create dangerous situations for the spiders so when I put this one on here, it may sound very simplistic, but it does end up, as you can see, I hope that you, it can compound the situation, end up with some very unfortunate situations where the keeper trying to make the best home for their spider jumps the gun, messes up what they had that could have been completely correct from the beginning, and now you've got an even worse situation because now you got to go back and change it again because what happens is you ask Tom what to do, and Tom goes, ah the changes you made get rid of those like I've had to tell people before yeah I think you put way too much moisture in there I would not wait for that to dry out I would rehouse the spider now and unfortunately expect it to take another few weeks to settle in it happens I know we all do I've had situations as well where I've picked up spiders set them up in enclosures and you start worrying wait a minute why isn't this thing doing what it's supposed to but you got to give them some time and it's not the same I've had people go well, what do you mean it's been four days why hasn't it settled in yet because it just hasn't settled in yet sometimes it's because little things like not giving them starter burrows I've told people before you have a moisture dependent species you haven't given a starter burrow if you really want to make a quick adjustment that won't mess up the spider and, and cause it to take more time to acclimate take something in there make a starter burrow with the back of a paintbrush or something pour some water in that starter burrow and then leave it overnight you might find that the spider a lot of times the spider will go over find that thing during the night start digging underneath it there are little things you can do here and there to tweak it but to jump the gun immediately and go it's not eating or it's not settling down or it's not webbing or it's not digging give them time to settle in before you mess something up 
So that's it for my list of some of the biggest mistakes or errors that folks make in the hobby. Hopefully that was, you know, for folks that have done it before, please feel free to chime in with stuff you've done. Again, I've shared some things I've done as well, including digging that spider up that wasn't all that long ago. It was like a month ago, max. We've all been there. We've all done it. This isn't something to, you know, make people feel stupid. It's just to recognize we've all been there. We've all had these situations. And sometimes it's good to just hear somebody talk about it. And for me, it's good to go through it. It's These are reminders to me as well. So again, we're not making fun of anybody. If you're one of the people that this has happened to, I am not saying this to make fun of you at all. I just It's always good to present examples and anecdotes of this really happening. So some people, I, I think for many of us, it makes us feel a little better. Like I'm not the only one to do this. I always share when somebody talks about digging up a tarantula about the ones that I've dug up so that they feel better about it, so they don't feel stupid, so they feel more open and that we can have a good discussion and try to fix things. But hopefully these were helpful hopefully for folks that uh have done it before you'll chime in that's it for me hey guys i I know i missed last week but we ended up with what is going to be almost an hour and 15 minute podcast out of it so i i'm thinking i made up for it and thank you for all who reached out because they were worrying that something had happened to me or that i'd quit the podcast i'm sorry about scaring you i was going to post something up on facebook that said hey there'd be no podcast this week but I, i just I didn't. So there it is. I just, one of those things, it's like, all right, I'm just not doing the podcast. We'll just have to wait. So thanks for all the guys that checked in. That'll do it for this one. As always, you can find me on tomsbigspiders.com. You can find me on tomsbigspiders on YouTube. I did finally post the video up with the queen and with the new slings I got. So if anybody's interested in checking that out, the death of the queen is up there. You guys heard about it in January. That's the funny thing. People are like offering me condolences. I don't, I mentioned in it that it had been many months since that had happened. I didn't mention they'd been almost a year, but it take me that long took me that amount of time to kind of not just get over but feel comfortable enough posting it again because I really didn't want to go through it all and I'm not the type of person that when when I'm sad about something I really don't want to have to answer all those I'm so sorry I'm so sorry I just wanted to kind of let it wear off a little bit move past it now I feel comfortable with it so that's up there if you want to check it out and uh, next week hopefully we'll be talking about a good situation with a new dog that obviously won't be the entire podcast but I'm very excited about seeing our new little Bella next week. So that'll do it for this one, guys. As always, stay safe, and we'll catch you all next time.